And good morning to all of you, and thank you so much for listening on this Labor Day weekend. Yes, it is the uh, final summer weekend of 2022. It is the Saturday of September long weekend, and it's time once again for another edition of the Lawn and Garden Journal. I'm Chris Sumner, and I will be a special co-host today with Carla Hersina for the Lawn and Garden Journal. And good morning to you, Carla. Good morning. Now, we have a very special email edition of the program. We did this earlier in the summer, and since we did that, Carla, we've just been flooded with additional email questions that are, of course, pertinent to this time of year. But before we get to those questions, after the Garden Club Circuit calendar, I want to make sure that we start the program like we always do, and that would with, uh, be with a poem. So what do you have for us today, Carla? Well, you know what? It's it's the time of season where we've been walking in our garden, and a lot of garden accents play a little figure of how we feel relaxed in our garden. And as I was doing a little walkabout The little garden gnome is so cute and reminiscent of a lot of gardens. So I thought, why not? Charlie the gnome. Please listen. Charlie the gnome needed a home. And so he looked around. The garden shed. Too big, he said. And too high off the ground. The barbecue would never do. The ash would make me sneeze. So on I go. Look high, look low. In and around the trees. The bird box white would be too tight, with chicks that chirp and cheep. The constant song, the whole day long. I'd never get to sleep. The kennel's large, but then there's Sarge and all his smelly toys. Plus, after dark, he likes to bark and make a lot of noise. The house I found is out of bound. Too many folk in there, so I'll stay out and look about, as I don't like to share. A wooden crate there by the gate, would make a perfect home. It's not too small or wide, nor tall. It's just right for this gnome. I need a door and windows for four, some carpet and a bed. A rocking chair would be great there, or maybe here instead. Yes, this is fine, and it's all mine, with roses all around. The place it seems straight from my dreams is what I've truly found. Charlie the Gnome, nor more will roam his house is warm and bright with flower beds of blues and reds and picket fence of white carla hersina getting us started on another edition of the lawn and garden uh, journal of course you can't have a garden without a garden gnome right carla oh you have to have a gnome Now, before we take a break here to share the Garden Club Circuit calendar, just a reminder, a very special email edition of the show this September long weekend. It is Saturday, September 3rd, so we will not be taking your calls. Rather, we're dipping back into the Lawn and Garden Journal email inbox to see what's been puzzling you in your backyard over the last couple of weeks. The first question coming up after this. It is Saturday, September 3rd. Labor Day weekend has arrived, and I'm Chris Sumner, special co-host today for the program as we dive into the Lawn and Garden Journal email inbox once again. We had such success, Carla, with that last email edition of the show back in July that we wanted to do it at least one more time as we were in the middle of the growing season. So how about we just chat a little bit? How have you been uh, the last time we connected there a little over a month ago? You know what? Uh, it's been good. It's uh, We're busy back in the garden center. It's It's kind of a... Uh, you get a little bit of a rest where we can, I don't know if you can say rest with a gardener, you're always in your garden, but it gives you that reprieve to be in the garden through 
the summer and into August, and now it's to September. It's an exciting time. We kind of get busy to be back into the second garden season, and uh, believe it or not, the tulips are are coming in, and um, it just gives you inspiration for the next season. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot, Carla, but I did hear you make a quick mention last week that you have a new addition to the family. Yes, we are so proud to say that we have our brand new uh, granddaughter. Uh, little Sophie was born. She uh, born. She joined our family, and um, oh, she is adorable. Uh, you know what? I'm a yeah, yeah. I'm a yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> grandma all over. And so there's a little bit of bias there, but uh, uh, she just completes our entire family. So. Uh, we welcomed her very much, and she is so dear to our hearts already. Well, congratulations there, Carla. I know it's something that you had talked about from time to time on the program, so I'm, I'm guessing you were you were looking forward to the new arrival, right? <laughs> oh, yes, very much so, very much so. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into our email questions for today. Again, it's a special email edition of the Lawn and Garden Journal on this Saturday, September 3rd. No phone calls, but we have a whole heap of email to get through today, Carla. And the first question that we're going to throw your way, this comes from Tina, and Tina wanted to talk to you about asparagus. So here's her question. If I planted asparagus this year and leave it in the garden through the winter, will it grow back in spring? Yes, um, asparagus. A, um, now there's two types. I would say, is it edible asparagus or is it a annual asparagus? Because there's two different classifications. If it is truly the asparagus edible varieties, uh, placing it in the ground, it will definitely come back. It's going to flourish. The root systems are going to grow and you will be able to harvest from that. Now, with edible uh, asparagus, the roots are very uh, tenderly. They're a little bit thicker fleshing. And what we usually recommend that you leave the crowns uh, to grow for about two to three years before you start to harvest and there's something that's beautiful about asparagus too as well, because as if you don't harvest right away, you do get this beautiful cloudy effect of this ferny effect from the asparagus head. So that's probably, yes, and you will enjoy it. Um, if you're going to grow it from a seed, it generally takes about three, four, five years before you get to get those uh, spears that are that can be plucked off and eaten. Now, if it's asparagus, the annual tropical, um, that will not survive. So you have to sort of say, okay, the clarity, I wanted to make sure that we discuss both. If it's the uh, tropical one, maybe dig it up and bring it in the house. <laughs> now, working under the assumption that this is the edible variety, is is there any special fall prep you need to do considering that that those those plants are in the ground and, and heading into winter, or do they overwinter like a perennial anywhere else in the yard would? Yeah, they are perennial. It is a pre- sort of thinking of it as a perennial vegetable, um, but with the asparagus, with almost every plant, you want to make sure that you have um, good moisture locking in the rooting system of our trees, shrubs, and our perennials, and also asparagus, for it to be a perennial over when it overwinters. The one thing about asparagus, though, when you do plant it in a garden, you want to make sure it's planted in an area that is well-drained, uh, because asparagus itself does not like to sit in areas where it holds moisture too long. So, I always like to say a little bit higher and dry in between waterings is good for it because um, if it's in a low-lying area first thing in spring when it's repeatedly sitting 
in that stagnant, it may cause a detriment to their root systems. Is it just me, Carla, or does it seem that we're getting more questions about asparagus on the Lawn and Garden Journal? Are are you seeing that in the Garden Centre, or is it just a case of I'm hearing more questions about it on the show? No, you know what? It is becoming a little bit more prevalent. I think in the last two years, especially, uh, we normally sell the roots in the spring, and they they have been um, sort of going quicker in sales in the last few years. But then we have to remember that the food security, I think, is playing on some people and the cost of food. So people are wanting to grow and um, have their own foods so that they can harvest and care for them. Yeah, whether you're just going to pick fresh or we're seeing it in all categories where we're now back into canning, canning, preserving. Uh, so there's a little bit of a pushback in there, So which ties in with growing your own food. Right on. Well, thank you to Tina for passing along that question about uh, asparagus in her garden. Now, Tina had a second question she wanted to pass along your way. Sticking with the veggie garden here, Carla, here's the question. Her eggplant is really small, but it has five eggplants on it that just don't seem to get very big. They're kind of stalled out, if you will. And she wants to know when are eggplants usually harvested? And she makes this suggestion, Carla, of perhaps she's just being a little bit impatient and she needs to wait a little longer. (laughs) Well, it could be that because the planting time, when you get it, and eggplants are a very long season crop. So uh, if you're able to get them a little bit faster by buying it as a, um, a plant start, that's good too because generally uh, they take 16 to 24 weeks depending on the variety. And some I find that go a little bit, a little bit longer because if weather plays a factor on slowing production down, then that time frame even extends it more. So, But the other thing too is maybe check to see if you still have the name variety of the eggplant that you've purchased because there's so many different eggplants on the market that have different shapes, textures that's to them. And believe it or not, some eggplants mature at a size of maybe two or three inches and while some of them can go up to 10 inches. So maybe check and see um, that that first. And when they're ripen, it's sort of fun to sort of see that the flesh on them I find that when the flesh is ready is when they're nice and firm and they don't sort of bounce back at you is usually the time frame that I like to sort of, you know, go to the grocery store and make sure that they're feeling just that right tone before I pick them. Now, would you say eggplant would be one of the longest season varieties of veggies that we might get away with in Southern Manitoba? Probably. It depends on what you're, what you're growing. Because I know um, some people were trying to do uh, different types of uh, like yams and and you know that kind of stuff and that's even a little longer where you want to make sure that you get some starts like sweet potatoes right we normally if we're going to grow them in our season we're wanting to buy a started plant because generally they get planted in the deep south I think um, if I'm correct usually in uh, January February that goes in the garden so you want to start it so that your leaf structure starts early so Getting those plants that have that extended portion of it is, yeah, it's probably one of those ones that does take a fair bit of time that's on it. Yeah, I would definitely say so. Well, and the other side that I like about uh, about uh, eggplants is uh, that purple color of some varieties. Boy, does it look good in the garden. Oh, you know, it's like a flower. You look at it and you see the intensity. So, And it's such a glossy, beautiful purple. 
that's on that texture. And you know what? Grilling some eggplant, um, that just takes you right to the barbecue too, right? Now, this is going a little bit off topic, but talking about uh, long season uh, veggies and crops that we might be able to get away with here in southern Manitoba. Over the weekend, Carla, for some reason, I was thinking about citrus trees. And I know you've had a few questions about citrus trees on the show this year. When is the right time to be thinking about bringing those in for those folks that do have citrus trees on their back decks and that sort of thing? Do you want to be well ahead of frost or can you play with that game a little bit? There's two trains of thoughts and I've been caught under that sort of condition where I've had a citrus that I've left out a little bit too long. And then when I brought it indoors, it kind of went, um, if it was a person, it would be going, do I go left or do I do, do right? Do I drop my leaves or do I keep my leaves? It does put a little bit of a stre- um, stress factor on them. Um, and citrus, we know, does not like frost at all that's on it. Uh, so I would start thinking now to take the steps for bringing those indoors because September is just around the corner. And we don't want to say that we're going to have that frost But if we start dipping in temperatures, you're just transitioning your plant for different uh, characteristics. So uh, even maintaining plants and trying to get them so that you start giving it a little bit of a wash off to see if there's any uh, bugs on it. Start thinking about removing that. Try and uh, put a little bit of diatomaceous earth on the soil so that any little creepers or crawlers that are out there. um, You know, there's certain measures of steps that we want to do to bring them indoors, but be very cognizant of the weather because you do not want to stress your plants, um, particularly because if it sheds some of its leaf structures and it naturally probably will anyway because of the um, difference from being outdoor air versus indoor air, but you just don't want to double up on the stressing factor. Carla Hersina and Chris Sumner with all of you today on the Lawn and Garden Journal. It is a special email edition of the show on this Saturday, September 3rd of September Long Weekend. We're going to take a short break and then be back with more of your email questions. And welcome back to the Lawn and Garden Journal on this Saturday, September 3rd. I'm Chris Sumner, a uh, special co-host, if you will, with your usual host, Carla Hersina from St. Mary's Nursery and Garden Center. We are not taking your calls today because we wanted to dive back into the Lawn and Garden Journal email inbox at least one more time before we really got into the fall prep season. So, Carla, our next question here. It's Brussels sprouts. Now, I tried Brussels sprouts for the first time this year. Um, in short, Carla, didn't go well, but not. it's not my day to ask questions. But this, <laughs> this email edition of the show has uh, Tina asking us this question. Is there an effective way to keep aphids off your Brussels sprout plants? Certain plants are a little harder than others to keep the bugs out just because of the structure of the the vegetable that's on there the main probably go for keeping any insects whether they're aphids or something off of um your brussels sprouts which is basically in sort of your cabbage uh, category is by going through different types of measures uh, one of them would be uh plant maybe some marigolds uh close to that area so it targets and using the properties of flowers to help that beneficial product of keeping the bugs at bay there is a small marigold i don't know um it's in the tajeti family it's a little bit fernier in structure of leaf pattern and the flower is a little bit flatter it's not like your old african 
or a French variety of marigolds, which have sort of a pom-pom head. It's a flatter uh, type of flower structure. But the scent of them is so citrusy and lemony scent that's to it that plays a category. So marigolds would probably be a good combination because then you're also bringing in pollinators. Well, yeah, and I was just going to say that it appears that that our Brussels sprouts in our backyard have uh, been picked apart by whatever has has moved into the yard. And I know there's always talk of like uh, canola beetles or things that are coming out of canola can eat those uh, crucifer plants, that cabbage family plant. So that's probably what I ran into, are you thinking? The flea beetle is, you know, it's first thing and it's so disheartening because there's two seasons of the flea beetle. That's on there. So first thing in the spring, you see it, and then they'll come back after certain crops are started to be harvested in the fall. So you're, you you kind of get that double whammy effect. So for those categories of bugs, uh, using a netting or like a row cover on top of it that has a very fine mesh netting, it's still in a sort of an opaque white. So you're still going to see the um the lighting that goes in for the the growth habit and it allows a little bit of moisture to go through so when you're watering you can water at ground level but the row covering is quite effective that's on it to be um it's a valuable source when you're using doing your cabbages and and everything in this category that's probably the number one protective one if the marigolds don't do it then definitely next year uh you can get row cover and some of them are really kind of nice because you can make row tunnels uh, which basically is a hooping system that goes over top. And then when you're wanting to check on th- uh, stuff, you just lift up the row cover, check it, and then put it back down. So um, those two measures. And, of course, if you start to see any type of measures of insects on any area of bugs, uh, my first go-to is a blast of water to wash it off. And then if you do have to follow up, you can also um, give it a little shot of a product called Endol. That will help, but always remember whenever you're using that type of product, uh, pre-soak your vegetables, which you should do anyway before, um, you know, cooking that. Soak them, and um, my daughter always says that she likes to soak her vegetables, strawberries, everything in a little bit of water with a little touch of vinegar, and it just brings all those little... Uh, critters to the top of the water. <laughs> well, we call the Lawn and Garden Journal the Lawn and Garden Journal for a reason, Carla. Of course, we talk a lot about veggie gardens and flower gardens, but we also get a lot of questions about how to keep that lawn looking as good as we can. This next question comes from Cindy. So her lawn seems to be overtaken with moss this year. Is there any way that you can get rid of that moss or a suggestion on how you might be able to tame it, Carla? Yeah, we're starting to see, you know, she's not alone on that one, especially um, this year. Because of the intensity of all the moisture that we've been having, um, it sort of has actively made this moss kind of go, yay, let's go, let's grow. But to res- uh, sort of keep it from going in certain areas, um, she probably has a very wet or moist area that's being repeatedly wet. Plus, um, I'm judging that the acidic content of the area where her moss is, is probably quite high. So what you can probably and most likely do is thatching it out really works. If you got a nice thatch rake and it's in the lawn, thatch through it, get some aeration down in there, open up that where you can get the structure where it's kind of opened, you know, break it up a little bit. Um, And at the same time, after you've thatched it, add a little bit of lime to the area to help and reduce the acidic content of the area around it. 
in the olden days, there used to be a moss killer, but and uh, we don't have it anymore. So the lime will work that's in there to help to bring that down. The other thing too, which I always sort of endorse, is if you want a really healthy yard, encourage the healthy growth of your grass. So if you want to uh, overseed a little bit that's on there and give a little bit of an overseeding of other grass, uh, when grass is healthy, it will be very competitive with the weeds that are in there and kind of help to choke that out too as well. Now, just playing off this moss question for uh, the lawn in the backyard and and you mentioning there the whole idea of doing some thatching now, I know in spring you always caution people about getting out in their yard too early to either aerate it or or to dethatch it. When we look at the fall and fall aeration or dethatching, is there any concerns there? Like, is there a point where it's too late to be doing that because of the frost? Well, thatching, you normally don't do thatching Uh, for the intensity of the lawn in the fall. We see that mostly in the spring for lifting things up. Uh, In the fall, if you're wanting to do aeration, aeration allows for that air and pockets to go through. It opens up um, air to the rooting uh, sources. And sometimes bringing the, when you're aerating, a lot of those plugs, um, if you get the system where they bring the plugs to the top, you're actually breaking up some of the composition of the ground to the surface, which again, uh, brings renderings and that will decompose and, and add some organic value back to the top surface. So doing the aeration in the fall is great. Doing overseeding in the fall is great. I, uh, overseeding is perfect at uh, late season. Even right before the snow fa- uh, starts to fly, putting a little bit of that grass seed on top of your existing lawn gives you a, a jump ahead for the next season Because just think that grass seed is nestled nicely under the snow. And when spring comes, that germination of that seed is well moistened so that it germinates at a perfect rate to go through it. So uh, in the spring, you may be having struggles with some of it heating. But naturally, that grass is just going to be taking off just underneath. That's a perfect time for overseeding in the fall. Now, before we uh, take our break here for our next uh, segment, Carla, did want to get this question in from uh, Eva. And this question has to do with crabapple trees. And, and in short, her question is, is it normal for a crabapple tree to skip a season? Now, here's the background she shared with us, Carla. Last summer was the first summer in their new home, and the apple tree in the garden was so heavy, super full of apples, They had to brace it because it was leaning quite a bit. Now, this year, the tree flowered in the spring, but didn't produce a single piece of fruit. So uh, uh, Eva wants to know, should they expect it to be back next year? Or is there something that they did wrong or they need to do to bring it back for next year? Some of our varieties of some of our uh, apple trees, they will skip a season if it's going through. And sometimes in some years, you will get the intensity of blooming and fruiting if there was a pre-existing stress that happened to the tree. So there's different scenarios that we don't know that may be uh, factoring on that. Sometimes it's the age of the tree too, affects the blooming and the blossoming and, the, and of course the fruiting. Um, other measures could be uh, just naturally if it became, if it had blossoms on it and it didn't fruit, was that tree 
affected by weather or a light touching a frost because a light touching a frost if it's in blossom could kill those blossoms which then kills that fruit for that year so weather plays a huge factor that's on it um a i would question the age of it b uh check and see if there was no damage done to the tree that was on the bottom portion of it a uh, rabbit damage or a uh, vole damage girdling the tree um those are other factors. So without seeing the whole scenario, uh, those may be some measures that could explain why it didn't bloom. But if there's no rabbit damage in that, it could be the stress factor. You know, we'll play it on that. Uh, high moisture content, uh, standing in water too long, or just the elements. Even heat stress will cause um, the fruit not to develop. And just quickly here, before we go to uh, break, Carl, I bring up fire blight. The reason being is I've actually seen a number of trees in my neighborhood with fire blight. Just a quick reminder of how we should be dealing with it and the fact that it needs to be dealt with in order to protect the rest of the tree. Yeah, fire blight, uh, when you have it, it's uh, it's so disheartening that when you do get it. Uh, take measures. If you do see fire blight that's on it, uh, you'll notice that the branching or stemming or darkening uh, the leaves will be crispening and it affects, it usually travels branch by branch, identify it. And when you're cutting it out, cut it out. And before you take your tech next measures to cut any more branching or, or tips or anything, make sure that you clean your secateurs or your loppers or your hand saws with bleach and water solutions so that you do not get a transference again to a new new location and discard this do not put it in the compost it would have to go direct to garbage Carla Hersina and Chris Sumner on this Saturday, September 3rd, a special email edition of the Lawn and Garden Journal. No phone calls today, and that's because we have received just a heaping full inbox of emails since the last email show we did earlier in the summer. Now, we're going to take a short break, and Carla, we have to talk about tomatoes, right? We have to talk about tomatoes. <laughs> I've got a whole I've got a whole bunch of tomato questions from a bunch of listeners that emailed them in, and we'll get to those after this. This is the Lawn and Garden Journal on Saturday, September 3rd. It is the Labor Day weekend edition of the show. I'm Chris Sumner, special co-host today with your usual host, Carla Hersina from St. Mary's Nursery and Garden Center. No phone call questions today as we're focusing on our email inbox, which has been overflowing since the last time we did a special email edition of the show early in the summer. Now, before we went to break, Carla, I teased the fact that we have some tomato questions. And by <laughs> some, I mean I got a lot of tomato questions. We'll see how many we can fit in here today before the end of the show. Okay. All right. So this first question is coming from Terry. Terry wants to know the following. So he is finding this year that his tomatoes are taking forever to ripen this summer. Now, he didn't provide a variety, but my gut, based on the fact that I know who Terry is, is they would be like a beefsteak variety, like a, a sandwich variety. Why would those tomatoes be taking such a long time to ripen? He's not alone because uh, I was a late pl planter and I have had hardly any tomatoes myself on there. So A, if it's, when we look at our crops again, we're going to go right back to the eggplant. And most people are going to be on time with getting their tomatoes. I was a little bit later, so I'm assuming mine were, because, you know, the shoemaker's son doesn't get the shoes done yet as early as everyone else. <laughs> but uh, days to maturity, days to fruit time, takes a huge factor too. And when we look at the 
environment around us. There's a lot of stress factors that have been happening within this is that there's categories that are on there that do not allow the maturity of that plant. So A, stress can play a factor that's on there. Uh, Over fertilizing can also play that factor that's on there. Um, The other one is intense sunlight. Uh, Believe it or not, intense sunlight will also delay fruiting because on tomato plants, you have a lot of foliage and the foliage is there for a purpose that's on it. So I find that if you have very limited foliage growth, you're also going to be uh, a little bit slower behind on your fruiting. There's a relationship on proportion of leaf to uh, your um, fruit structure. So this year, I'm going to throw it out to being stressed by excessive heat and excessive moisture. So those are probably the two categories that are playing key right now for the effect on tomatoes. Now, Terry also noted that his tomatoes are starting to develop cracks on the surface of the fruit. And he's wondering, is that does that mean he's watering too little or too much? Or could there be another possible uh, possibility here? Well, you've, you've got it right there. Um, fruit cracking is usually by irregular moisture content intake. So you get periods where um, it, not necessarily that he's going drought, but the respiration rate that the is going from the plant structure. A lot of the moisture may be not going to the fruit, but it's going to the structure of the plants. So the intake of moisture to the fruit is lower, but then all of a sudden uh, you get excess moisture put in there. And then again, boom, you get the moisture going in. So it's the irregularity of moisture content into the fruit that causes the swelling and which breaks the outer skin. So when we water and we try and regulate how much moisture is in the plant and in the ground. So a little bit of tasks that could help us with this is um, I'm an endorser of putting a little bit of a mulch over top of the soil to help keep the coolness and the moisture content there as a continuity for that structure of that plant to grow. So it's the dryness, excessive dryness to so much water that is causes that breakage. Interesting. I never would have thought, Carla, that we could have the same outcome with too little and too much water. That 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 is just very interesting to me. Well if you have just just well the way I sort of think of it is if you have too little water that skin is held so tight around how much moisture it has to hold for that fruit. And then all of a sudden, if I took a great big push of moisture, which goes through all those cells of all those plants, and eventually it's like breaking the the end of the dam where it has to push into the fruit. Now the fruit has not a constant moisture level, but now it's being pushed with all this extra moisture what happens? The skin cracks. All right. Yeah, I guess that I now that you're kind of putting that all together, I see how that makes sense. This year has been an anomaly for how much moisture that we have had. Um, in some cases, you know, uh, we're reminding people when it's raining to uh, also watch your containers and your pots because the foliage will just sort of make it act like an umbrella that it doesn't go in there. And this year, uh, I always like to use myself as an example or the guinea pig to sort of say there was intense rains where I didn't even have to water my hanging baskets that the water was so heavy that they 
they got the amount of water that to go into a hanging basket, which is unusual considering, you know, some of my pots are in hung underneath trees that have a canopy of a tree above it. So we've had a lot of rain in some areas. Well, let's keep the tomato questions coming here, Carla. This uh, this question is coming from Corny. What is the best way to prevent blossom end rot on his Roma style of tomatoes? Well, blossom end rot uh, will go to any type of tomato. And uh, the Roma tomatoes, oh, they are so valuable. They're so tasty. So I can hear his pain that's on there. So again, with blossom and rot, we go right back to make sure that you have preventative measures of regular watering. But the other side of that, too, is to make sure that if we're watering uh, water early in the morning versus later in the evening, try and get water to the ground and not where the water bounces up and splashes back onto the leaf structure because that could cause bacteria from the soil bouncing back. And... We mentioned the mulch. If you use the mulch base that's under there, that helps with the preventive measure of the backsplash that's on there. Um, and maybe at the point of planting, adding a little bit of calcium-based fertilizer will also help with a little bit of remedy for treating that. Now, I know you've had a number of questions about uh, blight on the show over the last number of weeks. Uh, The long and short of it is, Carla, if you have blight in that particular garden plot, it's probably there forever. Is that correct? Well, it's probably going to be in there for a little bit of a time frame. So crop rotation plays a huge factor that's on there. And um, when you're working it and you're working your garden later in the fall, it's good to get a little bit of a, a lift and till up. Remove any uh, remove any leaf structures that maybe had been affected. That's in there. Cleaning up is a good thing, and giving getting out the good garden forks and giving the garden a little bit of a lift up, so it gets good aeration um, to maybe kill off whatever's in there. Now, playing off uh, the comment of of cleaning up the uh, the leaf debris in your vegetable garden, so would you suggest, Carla, it would be a bad idea for you to just pull out your tomato plants and uh, and leave them in the garden, try and break them up over the winter or that kind of thing? Should they totally be removed? If they are diseased, then I would totally remove them. Okay. Um, there's there's two trains of thoughts that if you do remove them, um, some people. And I'm going to say I've heard some stories where people will compost them. But if you do compost leaves that have been affected, you have to make sure that your compost regime or your program uh, hits a high degree of temperature in order to eradicate any type of diseases that are in there. So but I always I'm always cautious that if I have anything that's diseased, I'm not putting it into my compost. I'm trying to keep my area of gardening as clean as I can so that I take preventive measures from the next year or by encouraging further growth of it. So I know you have been a pretty busy person over the course of the summer with everything that's going on at the Garden Centre, Carla. When do you start looking ahead to the next season? And I realize right now I just blew someone out of their chair because we're only in September long weekend. <laughs> but but when, when do you, in the Garden Centre business, start thinking about the 2023 growing season and how that relates back to what you would like to have in the Garden Centre? Well, you know what? I'm already into it. Uh, if you saw my office right now, Kelly, I, I have catalogs uh, stacked high. Um, they started arriving probably about a month ago already. So they already give us a tease as to sort of say what's going to be coming or how your programs are going. Uh, in the industry of growing, 
Um, our, we have the most fantastic crew that help to keep us going and growing. We're inventorying our pots. We're looking at what we're doing. We're getting collective ideas of how and where we like to take measures of what we're wanting to grow. And, um, you know, I already have a few programs ordered and ready to go. So, uh, the orders are getting into my suppliers and, uh, our fingers are doing a little bit of a tease every night, flipping through catalogs to sort of see, okay, what are we going to grow and uh, what are sort of the inspirations? So like being any other gardener, it's um, we're already we're we're walking our gardens. We're looking at things. We're assessing what we like. And this is the time to make notes of it and sort of say this did well. This could use some improvement. What Or maybe it was the season that affected it and I'd like to try it again. Fall is a good time for reflection and um and actually for hopes and inspiration for what you want to do next year, just Car- like us. <laughs> no kidding. Carla Hersina and, of course, uh, Chris Sumner with you on this special email edition of the Lawn and Garden Journal. It is September long weekend. No phone calls today, and we're actually heading toward the end of the show. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to wrap things up and send you off into the rest of the weekend. And welcome back to the Lawn and Garden Journal. It's Saturday, September 3rd, Labor Day long weekend. It's been a special email edition of the show. No phone calls today, but uh, Chris Sumner, special co-host alongside your usual host from St. Mary's Nursery and Garden Center, Carla Hersina. Now, before we break for the weekend, Carla, you did want to talk a little bit about tulips and bulbs because I've heard you mention this a number of times the last couple of weeks. We are now into the second growing season of the garden. It's that time of season where it's tulips. We start thinking for the next spring. So in essence, there's a lot of people that will come in in the, in the spring and see tulips and alliums growing, but you have to mark the calendar. Those are definitely bulbs that have to go into the garden in the fall. So that's where we're back to the garden and we're back to growing. Carla Hersina joining us for a special email edition of the show this weekend on the Lawn and Garden Journal. And Carla, you'll be back next week for more phone calls. I'll be back next weekend on the Lawn and Garden Journal. Bye-bye, everyone.